Hi, friends. Welcome to the Brave Enough Podcast. Grab some coffee, sit back, or enjoy your drive, and let's get authentic, real, and into the good stuff. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut, and I'm so excited to hang out with you today, where we're going to talk about life and work and all the messy stuff in between. So get ready. In episode 33, Sasha interviews Dr. Aaron Bass. Now here's your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut. Welcome to the Brave Enough Show. I'm super excited to have an amazing guest on today, Dr. Aaron Bass, who is a PhD, uh, who is just an amazing strategist. And she just has a super cool job. And her expertise is really something that I think every single listener is going to be able to learn something and take something from. But before that, before we get into that, I wanted to encourage you. I know that many of you are hearing about my masterclass. My masterclass is a 12-week intensive online course for women. You do not have to be a doctor to take the class. I will tell you most of the people that take the class are in healthcare of some sort, but you definitely don't have to. It's really applicable again, you know, among all uh, areas and, and specialties and all different types of careers. And what the class is, is it, it's a online class that really allows you to look deeply what your passion is, what your mission in life is, and just to check your priorities. It's kind of like one big priority check. And then how do you implement your real priorities? Because so many times in life, we find ourselves on paths where we've become overcommitted and they may be to really good causes and great things, but they leave us at the end of the day feeling completely imbalanced and empty. And so It not only allows you to look inside yourself and figure out what are your priorities, but then in a stepwise fashion, week to week, we go over how to really implement those, how to have crucial conversations, how to negotiate for things, how to kind of get back to what it is that we really want to do in life, whether it's with our job or our family. So if you're interested in the masterclass, head to becomebraveenough.com. The next class is going to be offered in September. I normally hold the class twice a year. Sometimes once a year, it just really depends on the number in the group. So head on over there and check it out. But without further ado, I'm super excited to have a superstar, as I mentioned on the program today. She's here in Omaha with me. And, you know, I met her about a year ago. Someone said, you know, you need to... To, to really uh, reach out and talk to Dr. Erin Bass. She is a associate professor of strategy in the College of, of Business at UNO. And she really helps organizations achieve high levels of performance. And she's very innovative. She is really passionate about diversi- diversity and inclusion. And she's just an all around amazing person. And she's a mom. So, you know, major props there. (laughs) She's got a lot of kids like I do. And so we have a lot in common. So welcome to the show, Erin. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited you're here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself in an area that's fairly male dominated, I would say in the position that you are. Yes, and it absolutely is male dominated. So I'm a PhD in strategy in the College of Business, like you said, and I really study everything related to how organizations beat out the competition or how they achieve these higher levels of performance, why some organizations are better than that than others. And of course, I teach and do consulting and executive education all in that area too. But I got into it 
um, taking a very nonlinear path. So actually, when I was very young, I trained as a classical ballet dancer. And my parents said, the only way that you can pursue that career is if you get a backup career, too. So I was fortunate enough to become a professional ballet dancer. But at the same time, I was earning my undergraduate degree in business because I figured that was a pretty stable backup plan. Once I retired from the stage, I finished my undergraduate degree in business and then worked in corporate America for several years and decided to go back and get my MBA. And so when I was completing my MBA, one of my professors said, you know, you're really doing the wrong thing. You shouldn't be getting an MBA. You should actually think about getting a PhD. And at that time, I had no idea what a PhD was, like what a person that has a PhD does for a living, but looked into it and thought, you know, I've always been curious and I've always been wanting to help others or help myself. And so decided to get my PhD in strategy and join academia. And so here I am. Okay. So I'm, I'm like laughing because obviously I've met you in real life and, you know, you're this like powerhouse, you know, suit heels. And I'm, and, and you work in this, you know, very, um, with executives, high functioning, you know, in the, the top roles of multiple organizations as a, as a consultant. And could you be any, could it be any more opposite of you on a stage? Like you went from this, you went from this really environment that was probably, you know, a lot of women, um, and and fairly, uh, probably the majority of women I'm assuming to, to this environment. So, you know, talk to me about, let's talk a little bit about your, passion for kind of, you know, filling the hole, filling the gaps in executive roles for women. Sure. So you're, and you're absolutely right. In a lot of ways, um, the two career paths seem very, uh, like they wouldn't coalesce at all, (laughs) but I'll talk a little bit later about maybe how they, I'm able to pull from some of what I learned, you know, on the stage in this very high competitive, high pressure environment for any of you who have done a sport or done something with um, all of your passion. It takes a lot of time. And so, of course, there was a lot of things that I learned working in that arena that actually I'm able to apply in my job now. But um, a lot of what my passion stemmed from was working in arts organizations um, that you know, they have a lot of talented people working there. They have a lot of um, innovative practices, but, you know, they some at some organizations lack the resources, the ability to really leverage that and help them succeed. And so we hear a lot about how arts organizations are struggling and having difficulties. And so that kind of always led me to think like, but why is that? They have these talented people working for them. How come they can't just make it work? And so when I started my PhD, that's a lot about what I was thinking about is how come some organizations can seem to put it together and make it work? And then why other organizations struggle with that? And so that's that background really helped me to come up with research questions and now be able to help organizations kind of figure those things out. I love that. And, and so talk to us a little bit about your, re- your research in, you know, especially when it comes to organizational outcomes and women on boards and things like that, because you're doing some really interesting research on this, which I think is, is a, 
is, is where it's at. I think that we have to, you know, I applaud you because you're someone that's taking the time to look at data and publish and for us to move the equity needle. That's what we have to do. We have to have study after study after study, because even though there are so many studies out there that, you know, we need more and more, um, just to, just to try to explain and educate to people where we are. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, um, that I was in kind of this very female dominated field. And then I moved into the male dominated field. Well, I didn't know that it was male dominated until I got there. And I think (laughs) I shared this story with you that I was at a conference and I was waiting to go out for dinner with a colleague. And so I'm waiting in the lobby and I looked around and thought in this lobby of 200 people, I am literally the only female standing here. Like it was totally this bizarre out of body Mm. experience. Mm -hmm. So that Um, experience really triggered me to start thinking like, where are the women? Why are there no women here? Why am I the only one standing in this lobby? And that's really what made me start to look at top management teams or even this uh, succession planning for executives. Like, where are the women? Why are women not being selected for these roles or why are they not included in these teams? And so a lot of my research really stemmed from that experience that I had. And the, I think the study that you're referring to about boards, um, I looked at not just having women on boards, but what happens when women speak up on boards? And I think this is something that a lot of people can relate to um, is not just being there, but actually being present and participating and how important it is. So I wanted to see like, do the data actually tell us something? And they do. I found that when women speak up, when they participate on boards, the board itself is actually better able to identify unique opportunities, innovative opportunities, And then that actually translates to that company having a better bottom line. So I was able to take something that seems very nebulous, like female participation, and be able to link it to a hard performance outcome. We looked specifically at return on assets for companies, and we use that kind of as a performance indicator, um, very generally speaking. So I think not just having women in these positions, but having women feel confident and be able to speak up is really can be critical to an organization's success. I love this. Okay. And I'm going to piggyback on this because I've written a couple different blogs on this and I actually am really passionate about it. And I've started talking about this on social media, this whole concept of more than one, because I often earlier in my career, or I should say in the middle of my last, like, let's say decade of my career, I started advancing to become the only woman on this committee, the only woman at that meeting, the only woman. And there was a part of me that felt special, like, oh, wow, I must be really awesome because I am like the only woman here. But I also started recognizing that I don't speak up as much when I'm the only woman. Why is that? And I realized it wasn't because I don't, I'm I'm scared because I'm actually a pretty bold person, I think, for the most part. It's because when there are more women around the table, I feel like the group as a whole is more balanced and the people that selected the people around the table 
care, like want to hear from women or want to hear or value women or value, you know, a minority's voice. If the, if I look around the table and not everybody is a, you know, 55 year old white male, I think to myself, okay, the people that put this together were thoughtful and aware that they actually wanted people with different perspectives coming from different backgrounds. And that makes me there at the table, more present, more confident and more willing to speak up. It's not because I'm like, oh, there's three women or, you know, so now they're going to, they're going to like back what I say, or they're going to agree with what I say. That's not it at all. It's, it's actually the people that are different from me around the table, like the men that I'm thinking, man, man, these men, they must be very educated and they have, they have looked around and said, you know, we want diversity. This is important to us. So I'm automatically more engaged. Isn't that funny? So then I kind of just started realizing like, it's actually not good for Sasha to be the only woman at the table. It's more powerful. I become more powerful when there's more than one. So I'm, I've been starting using this term more than one, more than one, because people ask me all the time as I'm doing this gender work, you know, most of the male leaders, because most of our leaders are male that say, you know, Sasha, what's like one thing I can do to help, um, to help move the needle in my department or what, what's one thing at my institution or in my organization I can do. And I always just say more than one, just do the more than one, make sure that there's not just one minority there or one woman, like increase the number. Because when we do that, women, in my opinion, are more successfully able to speak up. Yes, absolutely. Because it represents the normal social setting that we're used to. You know, when I walked out into that lobby and I was the only woman standing there, I realized that it was like this very weird social situation. So the same thing translates when I go into a committee meeting or when I go into a boardroom. If I'm the only woman there, I think this is weird. I'm not used to this, right? right. And so I'm not bringing my best self to the table. And I think that's what the study exemplifies and what you're discussing is um, having that mindset of whatever we're doing needs to be representative of the society that we engage with, whoever our customer is, whoever our patients are. Um, and so we can better serve that population and it's better for our organization too. Yeah. I love that. I love that you were actually able to tie this to a hard line of ROA. Um, and I, I have this conversation often, um, so, so here's, I want to play the devil advocate a little bit. Like, what do you say? Cause I think this is the most common critical thinking error. I get pushed back at me when I bring up in a meeting on a committee, on a nomination panel, whatever it is, like you guys, there's no women or there's no minorities listed here. I, I the instant response of everyone is, is well, we should, we're, we should pick the best person. Sasha. Like it shouldn't be about whether you're a woman or a minority or a man. It should just be the best person. So I always just kind of like sit there for a minute because I'm thinking to myself, yes, that's exactly right. And if we, if we don't have any women or minorities, we are saying that the best are men, like basically like there are white men, (laughs) like, like that's what we're actually saying if we don't, if we truly believe that, right? Like, so, but I don't ever want to offend people by just stating that, that fact. So, you know, how do you, do you ever hear that? How do you push back against that? Or what, what data do you use? What truths can you use? 
Yes. So absolutely. You know, we hear that all the time and I, I agree with that. We should always be selecting the best person for whatever it is. Right. Yes. I absolutely agree with that. I think though, when I hear that, when people say that to me, I always think or say, how are we defining the best, right? Like, how are we looking at that? Because if we are using, um, best criteria, that is biased toward men, then of course, or I should just say biased toward the majority, then of course we're going to land up with the majority kind of bubbling to the top. And so I think that's one way is to kind of go back and say, okay, yes, I absolutely agree with us that we should think about the best, but let's go back to the criteria of what makes the best and make sure that it is inclusive. And so that would be the number one um, thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is, you know, when I've been in these selection committees or when I've um, been in any of these kind of processes where you're kind of picking and choosing among people, at the end, when we've selected our our person or when we've selected our team is to say, now, why do you think those other people didn't float to the top, right? And so one example I can give is we know that it's much harder for females to get mentors than, to male, than for males. And we know one of the outcomes of mentorship is usually being able to scale the ladder. And so we might look back and say, okay, well, we didn't have a female to choose from for this. Maybe it's because we don't have an effective mentoring program. How can we implement an effective mentoring program so that next time when we're making these selections, we do have a more diverse pool? Yeah. And so I think that there's different ways that you can talk about how how to select the best that have that diversity and inclusion as part of them. I love that. I love it because, you know, I never, it's not like to me, it becomes this like teeter totter, like, well, we can either pick women and minorities or we can pick the best. And I'm like, okay, that's like, we have, we have to like, that's the wrong, that's not at all what we're saying, right? Like what we're saying is the pathway. I always say like, you know, it's kind of like when you walk through five feet of snow and there's like, you know, someone else has walked the path like you're walking out to your mailbox. Of course, we live in the middle of Nebraska, so it's freezing in the winter and there's snow. <laughs> you're always hoping that someone else has already made that path for you. But if the path was made by, you know, a six foot six person who's taking huge leaps, you're still going to have to like, and you're me, who's five, three, you're still going to have to make your own footsteps and the path towards so many nomination committees, leadership panels, speaking engagements is just it's not, it, it, we, we, we're not, it's not made for us. Like we're not on that path. So, you know, as someone who puts together a lot of different speakers and panels and things for some different organizations, I'm constantly coming back to committees and saying, okay, you guys, like we just put forward, you know, 80 men and like five women, the same five women that speak every year. Well, we want the best people. I'm like, yeah, but do you realize that this person is just as qualified? She's just as qualified as this person. She's actually more qualified to give this talk. Yeah, but we've never heard her talk. I'm like, yes, bingo. You've never heard her talk. So you didn't pick her because she's never been asked to talk, but she's actually more qualified to talk. So like we have to just keep um, educating and it's really easy. I found, you know, to become like passionate about it and get defensive, but I just always try to bring it back to educating people, which I think is, is your passion too, as you're doing this research, you know? 
Yes, yes. And at the end of the day, for me, working in organizations, I can always bring it back to those hard numbers that I was talking about. But, you know, the ROA is one. Another one is R&D. So companies that have more diverse boards typically have higher R&D spending, which we know is an indicator of a more innovative organization, too. So, you know, trying to tie it back to those kind of what are the outcomes that we want, right? If we pick someone for this position, in the end, we're doing it because we want them to help our organization succeed or our team succeed, right? And so being able to kind of tie it to that, I think, has been an effective tactic to be able to get other people to think about diversity and inclusion. Yes. I love it. I love it. So what do you say, you know, like, what would you say to a woman listening? That's like, you know, you guys, I, I've just been overlooked for so long that I'm, I've kind of given up because I get this a lot. And I think that the problem when you are a woman and maybe you've been working for a long time in a specific area and there's an opening for a promotion I think so many times women just because they work so they they're they've been working hard they expect that like they're going to get selected for that and and then it's even more crushing if they're like I'm going to put my hat in a ring but they don't get it and I think it creates this negative cycle of like well I tried and so I'm just giving up but what would you say to that woman what are some strategies that she you know you could tell her to just get back on the horse and and maybe maybe go about it a little differently Yeah. So I think, you know, like you said, it's all about strategy. And when we think about strategy, um, it's any kind of long-term plan for a particular purpose. So I can set up a strategy for an organization to become like a top company in terms of market share, right? I can also set a health strategy for myself. I can also set a relationship strategy, right? Because it's any kind of long-term plan to help me achieve some outcome, some goal, some objective. So I think for women, what we want to think about is like, why are we doing this? What, what is that goal that I want to achieve? And I know that you talk about this and some of your other talks too. What is that goal that I want to achieve? But then the strategy is what helps you get there. So I always put it this way, where I'm at right now is point A, where I want to be is point B. And I need a strategy to help me get to point B. And I always say like, fingers crossed is not a strategy, right? Like that's not going to get me to point B. I need to actually like put together a plan. I need to really critically think about how I'm going to get there. And working Um, hard and just working hard isn't really a strategy. I don't think people understand that. No, working hard is and keeping your head down. And uh, the other mistake that I think sometimes we make is assuming that other people are noticing my hard work or my achievements like that. That's also those are not strategies, right? A strategy is like an actual plan for doing. And so one of the things that helps organizations achieve a high level of strategy is thinking about what um, competencies they have, right? So what are we really good at and how can we leverage that for success? So I would say the same thing to women. Think about your competencies, the things that you're really good at and how you can leverage that for success. Um, But one caveat is if the things that you're good at, the competencies that you have are the same as everyone else, it's not going to get you to that end point. So you got to think about what is unique to you. What's your we would use the term competitive advantage that helps you succeed. So earlier in the podcast, you talked about how I 
have this very like nonlinear career path going from being a ballet dancer to a PhD. But one thing that I think I'm really good at is performing. And so I can perform whether it's on stage, you know, in a big theater um, or now when I walk into like a high powered boardroom, I know that I can turn it on and I know that I can perform. That's one of my competitive advantages. And that's something that I'm able to leverage for me to achieve some of the goals that I have. So you really want to think about not just the things that you're good at. I'm assuming that a lot of your listeners are going to be hardworking. They're going to be meticulous. They're going to have empathy, right? Those are all good. And you should continue having those things because you need those things to be able to effectively do your job. But you should also have something that no one else in your area or very few people have. And that's the competency that you really want to use to be able to achieve those goals. Yeah, I love that. I love this. This is such good advice. Um, You know, it's funny because I think sometimes we get mixed messages from leadership gurus and personality tests. Like, I mean, I spent a year really a year, about three, two, two and a half years ago, reading like every leadership book under the sun, because I was like, you know, I've got some weak areas in my leadership. And, and it actually came after I was, I didn't get a, a job that I thought I was going to get. And I thought, gosh, what is wrong with me? So I literally del- dove into the literature and read, 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 read. And it was like, I had personality whiplash after reading all these things because part of it was like, you need to be assertive, but you can't be too assertive. You need to make sure that you're socially nice to everybody. You know, women, women get judged for this. So don't do that. And women, you know, get judged for this. So you, sh- you shouldn't do too much of that and be this way, but that way. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like crazy. And so sometimes I think, you know, we're told that we really need to like work on our weaknesses, but then other times people tell us, oh, just know what you're good at and do that. And and, and, but don't have blinders, you know? And so I think sometimes as women, we often feel beat up when we try to get feedback or we try to, you know, develop our own style of, and confidence. Right. And I'm just really, I've come to this point in my life where number one, I know what my weaknesses are. Like mm-hmm. I've taken so many personality tests and so many of these things that, and, and had so many discussions and gotten so much feedback. Like I know what they are. I actually don't need someone to tell me. I don't, I don't need anybody to tell me what my weak spots are. I I'm very aware of them. And I think most women that are, you know, aware of themselves know what their weak spots are. I'm more, I'm all about at this point in my career, like figuring out what I love, not even what I'm really great at, but just what I love and doing those things and getting better at doing those things. Because when you can align something that makes, that brings you joy, even if you're, you know, an 80 percenter, like, even if you're like, well, I'm 80% good at that. Cause I tend to rank myself like in this weird way in my mind, like, you know, I, I can do certain things really, really well, but I don't actually love them. So I just don't do them anymore, Aaron. <laughs> like, right. you know, right. I'm, I, but then I also know what I can't do well. And I used, I think I spent so much time in my mid thirties beating myself up for my, the things I don't do well. And I've just realized that Every single woman on the planet has blind spots or weaknesses. Why do we focus? Why would we focus on those? So as a consultant to these executives, you know, what would you say to that, that woman who's like, well, I'm too this, but I'm not enough this. Well, I love that you brought that up because 
in, you know, when we think about um, the strategy of organizations, if something is a weakness to the point that it's a detriment to you, then you want to, you want to at least bring that up to, to an, a high enough capacity that it's not going to be a detriment anymore. Right. And right. so I think if you have a weakness, like let's say it's speaking in public, you know, if you're in a position where you have that requirement, you've got to at least get to a point where you can do it effectively. You yes. don't have to be the best, right? right? But you, you've got to bring that, that weakness kind of up to speed so that you can at least use that, that competency, right? Yes. But it doesn't mean that you have to all of a sudden love public speaking and go to public speaking courses and it, it becomes your passion. That right. That is absolutely not what it is, right? You right. Just got it. So I would say bring your weaknesses up to a level that you can, that they're not a detriment to you. And then focus on, like you said, I love that you brought up passion because when we evaluate competencies, we have this, we call it the VRIO model. So V-R-I-O. So the first question that I would ask is, is it valuable to you? So like you were just talking about, is it something that brings you joy that you enjoy doing that you want to become better at? So that's kind of the first question that we would ask. And then if it is, then the next question is, is it rare? And this is what I was talking about a few minutes ago. Like, are you kind of the only person or one of the few people that really has that or really could be able to leverage it. Like I said, there's not too many PhDs in business that I've met that have a background <laughs> in being a professional ballet dancer. So I, I think I'm pretty good with the rarity one, right? right. And then that I is, is it um, costly to imitate or is it difficult to imitate? So it would be very hard for someone to get a performing background, right? And so that kind of creates this little, um, we would call it like this moat, so to speak, that helps me be able to leverage that across a variety of situations. And then finally, are you in situations where you can actually use that? We would call it organized, right? But it's that you're actually able to use that competency for yourself. And so if one of those competencies kind of checks all of those boxes, it's valuable to you, it's rare, it's costly or difficult to imitate and you've organized your life to be able to use it, then we would say like, that's your competitive advantage. That's the thing that you really need to hone in on and use as much as you can, because that will be at least one of the things that will help you achieve those goals that you want to achieve. I love this. This is such good advice. I'm, I speak to women all the time one-on-one -on -one in my coaching and in my classes and also just get messages on social media. And I, I wish that I could spend an hour, um, with everyone and, and encourage them and give them some tips and I just can't do it. And so that's one of the reasons that I started this podcast is because I wanted to be able to talk to similar themes to, to so many women that have, brought up, you know, concerns or questions or like, how do I navigate this or that? And you're speaking right to them. You're speaking to so many common themes that we can all use. Um, and I love, you know, one of the things that like I often struggle with is just 
you know, one of the things that's really hard for me to do is to not fix people, right? Like uh, someone's telling me a problem and I just want to fix it. And that's one of my, my weakest areas. And so what I have, I have to practice doing is just listening because sometimes people just want to talk to you. They don't actually, you know, want coaching or advice. And so I love that you're coming on the show because you're actually like teaching me right now. And I'm just kind of becoming one. I'm like, Oh, this is okay. This is good. So I love that. I'm just listening and you're teaching and you're teaching me things. So thank you, Aaron, for coming on today. This has been, this has been so good. Um, so if women are listening and they are like, gosh, I would love to find out about uh, more about Erin and her research and what she does and her consultative consultative services. How can they find you? Sure. So I think the easiest way to find me is probably via email. I'm pretty responsive to email. So all of my handles are always A-E Bass. So A-E-B-A-S-S. My email is aebass at unomaha.edu. You can also find me on Twitter and follow me or message me on Twitter. It's just aebass. And then I'm also on LinkedIn, so feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. It's the LinkedIn URL slash aebass. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us tips just in leadership and in strategy and how to devise a plan for our careers. I really appreciate you coming on today. Oh, thank you for having me. I loved it. And if you are out there listening, I wanted to let all of you know that I added a new page to my website. It's called Sasha's Picks. It's my favorite Amazon finds. And you can head on over there and check those out. And I have some recent updates for Mother's Day and kind of some spring stuff. So go ahead on over to becomebraveenough.com and check out that page. And as always, live brave. Live brave.